We are once again in the book of Colossians. You know what? I don't have my, uh, no, I don't have my um, iPad with me. I forgot. That's okay. Yeah, Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 7. Our sermon series is called The Sufficiency, uh, excuse me, The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. We are going through the book of Colossians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we find ourselves in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, great. If you don't, there are Bibles in the back. But we are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Reading from the ESV, let me read to you the word of God. Chapter 3, verse 12 to verse 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if one has a complaint against Another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. We find ourselves really in, at the heart of what, what Paul has to say to the church, to the community, to God's people as they gather, as they, as they now put into practice all is that he has said about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. He began in chapter 1, brief introduction of his authorship, uh, his authority, his thankfulness to God as he prayed, and got right to work about who, the, who Jesus is, all that Jesus has done. In chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus is a king, who has, um, in whom we have redemption and we have forgiveness of sins, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Chapter 1, verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 1, verse 20, and through him, that's Christ, reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, how? By the blood of his cross. But then in chapter 2, Paul goes on the offensive. He begins to warn the church and teaching them about the different things that were going on, teaching against the different things that were going on, the, the false teaching that was brought into the church at Colossae. We learned that they were teaching things like how human philosophy and legalism and asceticism and false, false mysticism were all necessary, they were saying, to be right with God, to experience God, to know God, to have a deeper understanding of who God is and have true salvation, true redemption. And Paul says, no, that is a contradiction to the fact and the reality that all we need is Christ and Christ alone. Chapter 2, verse 3. In Christ are hidden all all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Then in chapter 3, we saw Paul transitions from his theological and polemic statements, arguments, to some practical Christian living, Christian uh, uh, practices. And Paul 
we've said this a couple of weeks in a row, and I think it's still important. Good theology, a right understanding of who God is, that's, that's, that's the indicative, that's the certainty, that's the, that's the declarations of all who God is, all we are in Christ. They come first, then the imperative, then the commands, then the directives. So as we turn to chapter 3, we need to remember that our sins were nailed to the cross. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. Our sins were nailed to the cross. We were dead with Christ. We died with him. We died to the old ways. We died to the old world. And we have now risen with Christ spiritually. We have a, a new identity. We have new life. We have new creation. Therefore, we should focus on a new world. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek and set your minds on things above. Since you died to the old life, you died with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. That's, that's the reality. That's the facts. That's the, that's the indicative. That's the certainty. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And Paul says, since that is true, there's things that you ought to put off. And there are things that you ought to put away. Verses 5 through 9. We have to put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, things of that nature. And we have to put away, verse 8 and 9, things like anger, wrath, malice, and lying to one another. We also said last week that when we receive the gospel, when we become new creatures in Christ, God begins this process of renewing and restoring our true identity. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. And have put on the new self. Which is being what? Renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And that new self, that redeemed self, that restored identity brings us into unity. Something that the world cannot give us. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. There is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all and in all. That's the unity we have in the gospel. And now today's text reveals to us what we are to put on as new creatures. It's very communal. It's about what we put on in our new identity. And I want you to see what Paul is doing here. He says, I want you to put off. We saw that already. Now we want you to put on. And what Paul is doing, look with me real quickly, chapter 1, verse 28. He's fulfilling his ministry. He said in chapter 128 that he, where he says, in him we proclaim, that's Christ. We proclaim Christ. We warn everyone. We teach everyone with all wisdom. Right? We teach them the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ. That's the point. He says, I toil and I struggle with the energy that God works in me so that everyone is growing and maturing in Christ. Salvation, the gospel, receiving salvation, and then sanctification, growing in maturity. There, there is the ministry of the word as he proclaims it, and then the mission to the world. It's every pastor's duty. That, that's, that's our job as pastors. Salvation, sanctification, ministry of the word, and then mission to the world. But we'll see today it's not just for the leaders. It's for every Christian. So three-point outline. You can put that up for me. No, it'll be good. Three points. Do I have it? Oh, yeah. Gospel clothing, gospel community, and gospel centrality. Okay? Gospel clothing, gospel community, gospel centrality. Okay? That's what we're going to see today as we jump into the text. Number one, gospel clothing. Look with me, chapter 3, verse 12. Now, Paul's instructions about clothing 
that they must put on. Look what he does first. He, he, he first begins going back to our identity, back to our union. He said, since, you've been, since you have died with Christ, that's what he's talking about, the old ways, the old world, you put to death the old garments that we talked about the last week, the flesh, that part of us that wants to live and rebel against God, act independently and selfishly, but now you are in union with Christ. This is what we are to put on. I said this last week, but I think it's really important. I want to repeat it. From birth, our sinful nature, our, our sinful mind, our, our bodies were programmed. Our body was, 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 uh, was living in separation from God. Our old self, our own mind was trained and conditioned to respond to our sinful desires. But when the Spirit of God comes and supernaturally gives us our new birth, our minds are to be renewed in the Word of God. Our bodies are brought into subjection to the, to the will of the Spirit. That's the sanctifying process. All our inclinations, our, our propensity to sin, our sinful thoughts are to come under the control of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Our flesh, before our salvation, was unopposed, was unopposed to the things of God, but now that the Spirit has, has entered in, He's renewing our mind. He's, he's, he is helping us to be conformed and transformed to the image of Christ, to our new identity, our, our, our new nature. Now, we said this last week, we're not denying that we struggle. They're not denying that there's still a part of us, the flesh, Paul talks about it, that wants to live independently of God and rebellion against God. But we, as children of God, with new natures, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, in us because of our salvation, we acknowledge that we have been made alive at regeneration, and we've received now new identities, new life. We're new creatures. We're not an old man and a new man living together. We are new creatures in Christ, right? We're not both in Adam, and which is dead to the world, but we are now in Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians a new creation in Christ, old has passed away. All things have become new. And now we are to put on garments consistent with our new life. But that truth, putting on the garments, must begin with recognizing our new identity. That's why Paul says in the first verse here that we're looking at in chapter 12, Put on then, stop, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So before he gets to that list, he's reminding us of our identity again. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now these titles that God, Paul has given us is taken straight out of the Old Testament. Talking about the Old Testament saints. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I have it marked in my Bible here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God says this in Deuteronomy 7, uh, yeah, 7, 7, and 8. It was not because, he's talking to the Israelites, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out. That's, that's sanctification, that's setting apart. Brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, house, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Okay? 
Now, and I'm not here to argue whether we're the new Israel, the old Israel, we replace Israel, but there's a, there's a continuity, continuation. There is, a, there is a, a continuum between the Old Testament and New Testament saying they are loved, they are chosen, and they are the beloved. So whether you're in Colossae, whether you're the Old Testament saint, or we're here today, and we are in Christ, we have been chosen, we've been set apart, and we are loved by God. Now, there are people that don't like to use the word chosen or election. They don't like that word. I love it. I delight and relish in it. Ephesians tells us, blessed be the God of Father of the Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. God the Father chose his children in Christ before the foundations of the world that we should be holy, that's sanctification, and blameless before him. What a joy. What a comfort. Nothing I have done or will have to do to try to convince God to choose me or to bless me because quite honestly, I'm not going to convince him. It's not going to work. All his blessing, the salvation is bestowed upon me because of his sovereignty and his grace. The choice was based on his purposes, not my human effort. Or merit. And I thank God for that. Now, we choose Christ. Yes, there's a time in which we, we, we believe in Christ. And, and that choosing of Christ is real and it's necessary. But it is the result of what God has done before the foundation of the world. To know that God has determined, know, that tells me that man can't take it away. Angels can't touch it. God has determined it and it will come to pass. And we are to find comfort and rest in that family. Not arrogance and pride, but comfort and rest in that truth. Been chosen, and we have been set aside, made holy. See that word, holy? That's that word, sanctification. It means that we've been set apart from sin and set apart onto God. From sin onto God. It's both, we talked about this before, it's a one-time event, and it's an ongoing process. We see that right here in this letter. There's an initial one-time setting apart that God does. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 13, did we not? He has delivered us from the, the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's setting apart. Corinthians, Paul talks about those who, are being, those who are enslaved to sin. And he says, that's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were what? Sanctified. You were set apart in that moment. Of salvation is different than justification. We don't have time to go there, but we have been set apart as a one-time setting apart that God delivered us from darkness into His kingdom of His Son. We've been cleansed by the blood. We've been set free from the guilt of our sin. But there's also the process of sanctification. We've been made holy. We've been set apart. Now we're being made more holy. First Thessalonians four three. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. The growing in likeness of God, of Christ. So we are what? We are, um, verse 12, we are chosen, holy, and beloved, right? We're identified with Christ who is the beloved son. God has chosen, set us apart, and now we have become, we, have, we are his objects of his love. That's what he means. John said, uh, Jesus said in John 17 that he will continue to make Known the word of the Father. This is Jesus talking to the Father in the high priestly prayer. And then he says this amazing thing. He says, so that, I'll make the Father's name uh, known, so that 
the love with which you have loved me, Jesus talking to the Father, the love that you have for me, Father, Son, may be in them, and I in them. So the love that God has for his Son is the love that God has for us. That's an amazing statement. Not sure of God's love? In Christ, he loves us as he loves his son. Paul is saying God has chosen and elected you for holiness, for service to the church, and his election is proof of his love for you. And now because of your new identity, I want you to put off. I want you to lay aside this old self. We saw that last week. And I want you to put on this new dress. I want you to put on this new clothing. It is the reality. It is putting on what your new creation, your new creature calls for. Look at the imperatives. There's five of them. Contrast to the five of the old flesh, the old man, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Remember we said we put the death of the old self by the Spirit. We did that last week. I'm not going there. And now we ought to put on this wardrobe, that, that, that really uh, beautiful apparel of Christ-likeness. There's five of them. And like the fruit of the Spirit, they're all connected. Look at the first one is compassion. Compassion, literally bowels, if you have a King James Version, bowels of mercy, it speaks of the, of the internal organs, the bowels, the deep sense of, of, of emotion, where emotion is felt deeply. Genuine sensitivity, a, a heartfelt uh, sympathy for others. It, it's this yearning of deep affection. Compassion is spoken of over and over and over concerning Jesus Christ in the New Testament. He had compassion on the brokenhearted. Second is kindness. Paul is calling believers to put on the clothing, the kindness. You experience compassion, you experience the kindness of God. In fact, Romans 2.4 says, it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. This, this spirit imparted goodness of heart, showing itself with this, this sweet disposition, thoughtfulness. As you interact with others, kindness. Third, humility. A proper understanding of oneself. C.S. Lewis said it right. Said it right. It's, it's not, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Isn't it true that, that, that people who, who are kind to others generally don't have this high estimation of themselves, pride and arrogance? Usually doesn't flow to kindness. Joy and unity is a result of, of members of the church and, and, and people who account each other why better than themselves, Philippians 2. Third, excuse me, fourth is meekness. Some of you translation might be gentleness. Meekness is not weakness. That's not what meekness means. Meekness in the New Testament means it, it means power that's under your control. We've talked about this before, a, a very strong horse that is under the control of its master. It is supernatural virtue, St. Clair Ferguson says, humble strength that belongs to the man or woman who, by the Spirit, has learned to submit to difficulties and experiences, knowing that in everything God is working for his good, end quote. Power in the control. And last virtue that we ought to put on like clothing is patience, long-suffering. In the midst of offense and injury, we are to put on patience. Again, we saw 
You can see this in the fruit of the Spirit. Some of this is in, in Galatians 5.22. It's not just, it's not just, long-suffering is not just passively submissive. It is, it is this outward trust waiting on God and being patient. And Peter, excuse me, Paul says it should, we should be patient with everyone. Everyone. 1 Thessalonians 5. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. <laughs> Being patient. All of these have to do with, with, with how we treat one another. God forbears us. He's slow to anger. He gives us time to repent. He, he's, he's patient with us. And, and the bottom line is all that we see, these, these five things to put on, teaches us about the gospel. It should remind us of the gospel. It was God's compassionate heart that saw our helplessness in our sin, that we were dead in our sin, we could not help him ourselves, that he moved to save us. It was his compassionate heart. It is the gospel that reminds us of God's kindness towards us. We deserve nothing but wrath, but we receive the kindness of God. It is God's humility that caused him to step out of heaven's glory to take on flesh in this broken world. Philippians 2 says, he, Jesus was found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross where he delivered us and rescued us from the wrath to come. It was Christ's meekness in the gospel where he could have called legions of angels to destroy the earth, but yet instead... In complete control and under the, uh, uh, in obedience to the Father, willingly died as our substitutes. What can I say about the gospel and patience, right? If not for the patience of God through the gospel, lovingly putting up with you and putting up with me each and every day, where would we be? Let the gospel resonate in our souls. Let the gospel fill our hearts and then it will overflow to others. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another. That means, let's just be honest, tolerating each other. That's what that means. The old saying, to live above with the saints we love. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. I mean, don't you just wish everyone was just as balanced as you are? Like, why, why, can't, why can't everyone just know that your way is the best way? I mean, what's the problem? It's not just putting up with one another, refuse, refusing retaliation and patience, but we must forgive. Again, because God has forgiven us in the gospel. If one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other as the Lord forgave you, as the Lord forgave you, in the same manner, you also must forgive. Hmm. As the Lord forgave you. In the same way the Lord's forgiven you, forgive others. Well, the fact that believers' sins have been forgiven through the vicarious death of Christ, verses one, chapter 1, verse 14, two, chapter 2, verse 13 through 14, that demands that we must show forgiveness to one another. In other words, how can we receive the joy and release, which that forgiveness means to, to be set free, to be forgiven, to be released from debt, 
all that we owe, how can we for, be forgiven of God and yet not ex, you know, experiencing that and then not giving it to other people? Not, not, not giving and extending forgiveness to one another. That's what he's saying. Remember Jesus himself when he was hung on the cross. One of the things, one of the phrases he said, there were seven of them, was what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I mean, they just beat him mercilessly, whipped him and nailed him to a wooden cross the perfect spotless lamb of God, and Jesus says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Dr. Neil Anderson, he's a, you might have heard of him, he, Victory Over the Darkness, um, Bondage Breaker, and other, other books he's wrote. He wrote The Seven Steps to Freedom, uh, a process by which Christians deal with uh, resolving personal and, and uh, spiritual conflicts. Uh, I mentioned this before, I preached a sermon on forgiveness online, if you, if you really, I'm not going to get too much into it, but very important. He was asked, of all the seven steps of freedom, which one, you know, was the most important? And without even blinking an eye, he said, number one, the, the, the number one ticket to freedom was the issue of forgiveness. In other words, being bitter and holding on to unforgiveness, that's what he means. And he says, in some cases, the only one. Jesus has a lot to say about forgiveness. In the scriptures, uh, the unforgivable, excuse me, unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 uh, there's a sermon, Forgiven and Free, for information on our, on our website. You can look that up. We are to forgive. Actually, the word here in our text is uh, karazamai, which, which has that, uh, that piece in it that says karas, which means grace. In other words, what Paul is saying, we are to forgive. We are to release the person from obligation of, of repaying our, uh, the debt one owes because of sin by an act of grace. Freely, graciously, not grudgingly forgiving. Isn't that how God forgives us? Isn't that how God forgives us? Can you imagine it being any other way except freely, ungrudgingly, graciously forgiving us? Begging, borrowing, stealing, uh, promising? <laughs> Forgiveness is first and foremost, listen to me, substitutionary. Okay? Forgiveness is first and foremost substitutionary. Rather than making the one pay you what owes you because of their sin, you absorb the debt yourself. That's what forgiveness means. Resolving to live with the consequences of someone else's wrongdoing. Absorbing the consequences in oneself, requiring no payment for the offense. Making a deliberate choice to release the guilty party releasing them off the hook, knowing that God will do what God will do. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But absorbing the cost, that's what substitutionary forgiveness means. That's what, that's what, it, that's what forgiveness entails. In fact, when we have been truly harmed and hurt, when we truly work through the process of forgiveness, there's pain, there is hurt, there is struggle, that's absorbing the cost. The debt doesn't go in thin air. Matthew 18 will show you that. Someone must pay it. And when we absorb the cost and we release, there's pain and the hurt, but there's freedom after. That's why forgiveness is always substitutionary. That's what Christ did for us. He absorbed the cost, took the wrath that we deserve upon himself, and died and rose. Now, let me just tell you quickly what forgiveness is not, just in case you're here and you're struggling with forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean that we tolerate sinful behavior. 
allowing the offending party to continue to sin. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. Trust is not forgiveness. Now, they may overlap, but trust is built over time. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I, I need to forget. I just keep no. God says my sins will remember no more. It doesn't mean he has amnesia. What he means is he's not holding it against you. He's not reminding of you daily. He has erased it from the record. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. You may never reconcile because someone is unrepentant. You may never reconcile because that person who harmed you is dead. But we are commanded and empowered to work through the forgiveness process and, and absorb the cost, the debt that is owed in ourselves and release the guilty party. That is what expected, he says in verse 13. And then in verse 14, he says what? Above all these, put on love. Binding everything together in perfect harmony. Chapter 1, verse 4, the love, he says, I heard about the love you have for all the saints. Chapter 1, verse 8, love in the spirit, they love in the spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2, they're being knit together in love. And Paul makes it clear that love is the way to, that we learn all the riches of the fullness and assurance and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ in chapter 2. And now he says this love binds us together to live in unity. Love becomes that lubricant that allows all of the attributes, all of the things we are to put on, to freely move in and among his people. Sacrificial love is what achieves the goal of uniting all the virtues, working together achieving their full power when it's, in, listen, when it's empowered by love. Put these on and then wrap it around with love. With love. Love is the evidence of our salvation. is the testimony of the gospel. It, it is expressing our love for God, our love for others. It incarnates the character and the attributes of God among us. It is the fulfillment of the law. God loves us, and our love for one another is the perfect bond. It, it weds together, it binds together, it, it brings all the virtues together in perfect harmony as we live life out together. Gospel clothing. A second is gospel community. And we're going to spend some time here, and I'm going to tell you right now, in chapter, in, in, um, when we get to the third point, I'm just going to, we're going to go back to it next week, I'm just going to wrap up on the third point, so... Um, when we get there, I just want to let you know. Uh, gospel clothing, gospel community, look at verse 5. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and again, be thankful. Now the word, the verb rule, has to come from the world of athletics, as used as an umpire. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says that Christians are not to allow anyone to disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels, that word is like that, a judge, an umpire. But here Paul uses it in a, in a positive sense. And what he's saying is, let the peace of Christ rule. Be the umpire in your hearts. Allow his peace to, to arbitrate, to control us. The atmosphere of all that we do as a community is, is within the peace of Christ. Now, in our day, in our present day, in our present culture with, with, with ongoing wars and inflation and violence and hatred, just to name a few, our hearts can become filled with worry, can be filled with anxiety, fear, frustrations, and worries just weigh on us. 
It makes it hard to, to, to live in a community characterized by peace. It really does. We need to strive for that. How do we strive to let the peace of God rule our hearts? How does this shalom, that's peace in Hebrew, all-inclusive, well-being, quiet disposition within us, how do we do that? Let me tell you two ways. One is, and I, it's in the text as we read in chapter uh, 2, verse 5. One of the ways that Christ will rule in our hearts with his peace, his peace will rule in our hearts, is our recognition of the lordship of Christ. We talked about it when we were in chapter 2, verse 8, that Christ is Lord. He's reigning and ruling supreme over all creation. He's our God. He's our Savior. We could trust him. We can rest in him. We can allow his peace to control us as he reigns and rules from above. Also, we rule, the, the peace of Christ can rule in our hearts when we recognize that we have been reconciled to God. That's the first place, right? That he made peace by the blood of his cross. That on the cross, as Jesus died and shed his blood, we have relationship with him. Where there was once alienation, hostility, and estrangement, there is now peace. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear or his ear dull that he cannot hear. He could save, he could hear, but, verse 2, your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so he doesn't hear. That's the alienation that needs to have peace. I'm coming up on my 35th birthday. I'm telling the truth. My spiritual birthday. Spiritually, 35. I remember the day like it was yesterday. And I, I appreciate y'all laughing when I said that. I do. <laughs> First time I ever just cried out to God for help. He rescued me. He gave me hope. He had a sense of peace in my life. I didn't know much that day. But I knew that God heard me. And although my drug addiction had gotten out of control, I, I believed that day that God was going to be my helper. And within days of me crying out, he revealed to me the beauty of his son, the glorious gospel. And I was at peace with God, knowing that all my sins were washed away. All that I have done in rebellion of God and hurting others was forgiven. You know, on the night Jesus was betrayed with his disciples, he said in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives you. In other words, the peace that Jesus is talking about can't be found in this world. He gives us a special peace. He calls it my peace. It is his own personal peace. It's not simply not experiencing, it is not simply the peace we experience when there's no conflict. Jesus himself says, rest in me. I will give you a sense of well-being and completeness. Completely, completeness. He alone gives it. And notice this peace that he's talking about in verse, six, uh, verse 15 is not just for you. For you were called in one body. One body. The peace of Christ should, should characterize the community of God's people. And what I have to say, what I, what I thought about that this week, I have to say what I love about this community is that it is and has been filled with God, Christ's peace. I mean, we had, 50, I don't know how many people here yesterday, all running around trying to clean the church. It was a joyful time. I mean, we're tired, I get that, but there was peace. We had a goal. We want to get the place ready so we can gather and worship the Lord Jesus Christ today. It's not that we don't disagree. At times, we do. 
It's not like we have no conflict. We do at times. But we have been a people that are, are willing to move on, to strive for peace. And if the peace of Christ rules our hearts individually, it will what? Manifest itself in community. Very simply, if Christ is ruling in our hearts, then really it's not about me, it's about him. I don't have to get my way. And in the end, he's the Lord. He's the head of his church. And then I can respond, what does he say next? In thankfulness, be thankful. Christ's peace brings thankfulness. Listen, when we are Christ-centered, gospel-saturated, that means resting and trusting in Christ and all that he has done, how could we not be a thankful people? Right? Gratitude promotes peace. Rehearsing the truth of God's grace, remembering daily that our own merit, our own work will never reconcile us to God, that our sins are many, but his mercy and his grace are more. Kent Hughes, when the buckets we carry are full of Christ, our lives are bathed with the peace of God in thanksgiving. Let, let me share with you a passage, Psalm 50, verse 23. Psalm 50, verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, God says, glorifies me. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. You ever think about that? Thanksgiving to God brings glory to God? Romans 1, Paul describes the, the unbeliever and their idolatry, and he says, for though they knew God, he's shown himself in revelation and in his creation, excuse me, they did not honor him or give him thanks. They became futile and foolish, and their hearts were darkened. That, that's the thanklessness of unbelievers. But believers, a thankful heart will be cultivated with believers. There's humility. There's a recognition of grace. A thankful heart will, listen, will, will continually remember all that God has done, all that God is. It will lessen our anxiety. It will increase our contentment. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, is not of the world, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, when our prayers are accompanied with thanksgiving, God promises that our hearts will be free from anxiety. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Be thankful. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, again, with thankfulness in your hearts. Now, underline the word you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You is y'all. It's plural. Okay? Not you individually. It's all of us. And these aren't suggestions. They're imperatives. They're commands. Let the word of Christ dwell in all of you. Now, what does he mean by the word of Christ? Does he mean all that Christ said? You know, you got your Bible, you got your red letters, which I don't really like a whole lot. Um, is it everything that Jesus taught? Is that what he means by the word of Christ? I don't think so. I think according to, although that's true, um, I think what, what, what Paul is getting at is the word, meaning the word of, of the gospel, is not the word from Christ, but the word of the message about Christ, 
about the truth of the gospel. Why I say that in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before, in the word of the truth, the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 6, this word, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. So I think this word of Christ, the gospel, the person of work of Christ, is to dwell richly, which means abundantly, in large amounts with us, teaching and admonishing one another. Remember we said that's what Paul wanted to do, teach and admonish one another. Chapter 1, verse 28, till everyone is mature. Now he's saying, look, that's my job as an apostle, is to teach and admonish to the maturity. And now he's saying, listen, Christians, we're all in this together. Let the, let the word of Christ dwell in all of you. All of you teach and admonish one another. Admonish means to warn. It's a strong encouragement. It's exhortation. It could be a rebuke. To admonish one another. Teaching, imparting truth. The word of God. And we need them both. And we, we, need, we need the truth of the gospel. We need warning of the gospel. And then he says it should be done in wisdom, knowing the will of God. All of this, of course, with compassion and kindness, everything he said before. Disciples of Christ should implement these activities with one another in love, look what he says, and in song. Singing, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. I think what Paul is getting at is this, this teaching and admonishing one another and, and singing is a method and a means that the church is getting the gospel out. The word of Christ is to dwell in our hearts, in our community, as we sing as well. Songs are meant to not just be sung, but for our edification. They teach us, he says, look, at, look, we sing psalms, probably Old Testament psalms. And some say the words hymns when he says, you know, he, when he talks about the psalms, singing psalms, Old Testament song. Some people think when he goes to hymns, he's talking about some of the New Testament stuff we see in, in certain books of the Bible. There, 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 were, there were hymns about Christ. And spiritual songs, probably all kinds of songs. Words of exalting Christ set to music. We don't know exactly what Paul was saying, but we know one thing. The early church were a singing people. And God's people, ever since the early church, were singing people. And we are a singing people. God's people sing. And they sing with all kinds of combination of spiritual songs. The point is that we should not be ignored is that they must be sung as Christ at the center, the gospel at the center, with a thankful spirit, a humble heart. That's what he says. Thankfulness, another word for grace. Right, it's a different word. 15, it's interesting, verse 15, when it says thankful in verse 15, and then in verse 16 it says thankful. It's two different words, which I thought was interesting. And when I looked them up, it's the verse 16 really is the word grace. With grace in your hearts. I'm like, hmm. The songs we sing here at King Chapel, and I can speak for Ricky, we have lots of conversation. First and foremost is about the content. It could be really cool song, man, that sounds great, got a good groove. If it doesn't teach the truth of the gospel, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We sing songs centered on the gospel, centered on grace. 
As we do, we grow in our understanding of the real stench and heinousness and treasonous of our sins and how God, under no obligation, forgives us of our sins. It is then we become grateful and thankful for our unearned, freely given mercy and grace as a gift of God in the gospel. Eternal life, eternal joy, eternal rescue from the eternal wrath of God. And we sing to the praise and glory of God. Singing the gospel helps us to rehearse the gospel, helps us to remember the gospel. Being grateful for the gospel does not take away the pain. It doesn't mean that everything now is okay in my circumstances. But singing the gospel as the gospel is being preached and sung, we delight in God. It brings us joy. It gives us thanksgiving, a heart of thankfulness. All the good we sing is about the God of grace. There's no room <laughs> to sing about self, our own ambition, when we've experienced the grace of God in the gospel, the transforming power of God's grace in the gospel, we sing about it and we are thankful for it. And there's an awareness of grace felt in the heart, he says. Your hearts to God. Family, I, I, I'll make this statement. You can disagree with me if you want, and that's fine. Besides preaching the word, nothing else teaches and admonishes one another than a heartfelt passionate singing that comes from those who know and have experienced the grace of God. Nothing else. Gospel clothing, gospel community, and we're going to wrap it up just a couple of minutes with gospel centrality. Okay? Verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, we'll come back to this next week. Word and deed. It's like, Paul, can you give me some wiggle room no, all that you say and all that you do, everything that comes out of your mouth, through your lips, all that you do, working, shopping, driving, all that you do, everything you say, everyone you talk to, all that you do must be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, really? Acting in someone's, that's what it means, doing it in his name, acting in, in, as someone's representative, representing that person, acting in their authority. In other words, we are to represent Christ in all that we say and all that we do. That is no small claim. I mean, do we consider what would Jesus say in this moment? I know there's a cliche out there, but what would Jesus do in this moment? How would Jesus treat so-and-so in this moment? The, 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 would Jesus get honor and glory? If what am I about to say or what am I about to do? Does it, does it proclaim the grace and the kindness and the mercy that God has shown to me? Melican New American Commentary. They were, they were to do nothing apart from his direction, approval, and purposes. It means to live in accordance with his name means in harmony with his revealed will, in subjection to his authority, in dependence of his power, end quote. Paul is saying, walk in a manner worthy, bearing good fruit, chapter 1. Walk in the lordship of Christ, chapter 2, verse 6. Showing itself and demonstrating itself in all that we say and all that we do. In other words, our whole life is, is, is meant to be an act of worship. An act of worship. And now lastly, give thanks to God the Father. And this is where we'll end. Paul describes believers as going through Jesus to the Father. Remember in chapter 1, he said that the Father has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. 
we are to thank God for the deliverance from darkness, that, that we were placed in the Son through the work of the Son, and the fact that we have access to the Father because of the work of the Son should erupt in thanksgiving to the ears of God through the Son. What does that mean? The band can come on up, and I'll give me two minutes as the band comes up and gets ready. Well, listen to me carefully. This, this, is, this is what I think we should walk away or how we want to end it. If we are a people who are putting on clothing and we're walking in a certain way, if we're looking to do and to act and to say everything in the name of Christ, to honor him and to represent him, in order for us to do it through the gospel, we have to give thanks through the gospel. So in other words, if we are give if we are to give thanks to God the Father through the Son, let's do so remembering the person and work of Christ, who is the gospel. In other words, let us put on gospel clothes, live out gospel community together, live in gospel community together. Let us do and say everything as if Christ was living in and through us, all by the means of grace, because we're constantly reminded that we're giving thanks and we're praising God through the gospel. His name is Jesus. This way we don't get caught up in arrogance, look how great I am, or we get caught up in, in, in uh, uh, false humility. I could never do anything. We are giving thanks through the person and the work of Jesus, and because of his grace, we serve love, we put on the clothes, and we act the way we do, and we do what we uh, do and say what we say, all because of grace. Right? Isn't it all because of grace? And if we're going to give thanks to God through the Son, let's remind ourselves of the gospel, that we are loved and accepted because of Christ, not in order to gain acceptance, not in order to gain grace, we already have it in Christ. Therefore, thankful, gratitude hearts, serve, love, care, and, and, and have unity and love among one another. Does that make sense? Let's stand as we pray. Father, we are thankful that you have called us here together to live as light and salt to the world around us. Father, we pray that we would serve on mission and do it well for your glory. But we do pray also that it would be a work by your spirit as we put on this, this new clothing in our new identity. As we live out what it means to have Christ living in us. Living out the gospel. Um, putting on gospel clothes. Living out gospel community. And always giving thanks for the gospel. Lord, may that permeate every single aspect of our lives as we serve you, as we serve one another, and as we live on mission to the world. May they see that we are new creatures because of what you have done in and through the gospel and by your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.